I'm proud to be partnering with American Giant, a brand with a remarkable journey rooted in American values. Born from a single iconic hoodie, they embarked on a 12-year mission to produce quality clothing right here in the USA while revitalizing communities across the nation. But there's more to their story. American Giant proudly stands beside the Rescue 22 Foundation, an organization dedicated to enhancing the lives of our veterans. They have crafted an exclusive Rescue 22 classic full-zip hoodie to support this noble cause. Each purchase helps provide a much-needed service dog to a deserving veteran. Discover the essence of American-made excellence, fostering jobs on American soil, and preserving the rich tradition of high-quality American manufacturing. Visit American-Giant.com slash Jack today and unlock an exclusive 20% discount using code Jack at checkout. Join us in celebrating the spirit of American craftsmanship while making a difference in the lives of our nation's heroes. This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Brian Kilmeade. He is the co-host of Fox and Friends every morning on the Fox News Channel, also hosts a daily national radio show, The Brian Kilmeade Show, and is the author of George Washington's Secret Six, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the President and the Freedom Fighter, and his latest, Teddy and Booker T. And now, without further ado, Brian Kilmeade. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time. I always love talking to you uh, because we share oh. a love of history and uh, we share uh, this this thought of how important it is to study the past for a variety of reasons. And I want to jump into your book right here. Here it is, Teddy and Booker T. Awesome. I picked it up this morning at uh, at. Um, uh, my local bookstore here, Dolly's Bookstore oh, nice. in Park City. So, uh, so they have them there. Signed a couple of mine while I was in there. Um, but uh, I want to talk about the new book. But before we get to that, because I know we have limited time, I want to talk a little bit about current events because you are on six hours a day, five days a week. Yeah. Is that right? And that's probably an average because oftentimes you jump on other shows or substitute or do I mean, you have your own shows. So how are you doing that? And how are you doing the prep? for all these. Cause I've been in studio with you. I've been there in New York right. live TV and you're so calm and there's so much going on. The world's blowing up all over the place and cut to commercial. And it's just, you know, just talk or whatever, or have a little sip of water and then boom, you're right back in and you haven't missed a beat. Um, how do you remain so calm in these things, especially when you know anything you say or do is like, maybe there's a three or four or five second delay, maybe, but it's out there forever. How do you remain so calm? Well, I mean, I know it's going to be out there forever. If you work on Fox, you can expect it. If you Google your name, you're not going to be happy. It's just, <laughs> it's just the way it is. Uh, so you, you'll be, just try to be responsible. But um, I love preparing. Like, for example, I, I like to, I love the research on the books uh, as much as any other process. And I like preparing. I mean, I'm up at 2.30, uh, in the car at 3, and I'm, that's my most vital time until 5.56, uh, and then we're on. And then our show is more of a slice of life. And the same thing with the Brian Kilmeade radio show. It's a slice of life. So Jack Carr comes in. We talk. And then I got somebody else coming in. He's telling me what's going to be wrong, what went wrong in the Virginia race. 
I got my notes already where I want to go, but mostly I'm listening. And then I take a slice of life. I'm talking to people. So it's not like, ladies and gentlemen, please greet. And Brian, kill me. It is. I feel like I am just, they just start televising this portion of my life. Because this is really all I'm interested in. All these elements, talking to great guys like you about their unique background, what brought them here, and then how to better define and disseminate what's going on in the world. Because it's really, I mean, you can't take you can't take an hour off. I can't tell you how many times I go out, I you know shut it off for a while, go work out, turn the TV off, then I go do a bunch of errands, I come back and I'll hear, wow, do you hear what happened? No. And they'll tell me three things I didn't know because I walked away for a few hours. So it's amazing. Or someone's got a perspective on something or a column you should read or there's somebody else you should book. So I always, I feel like it's not, it never really stops. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's go, go, go. But I'm always impressed with how, um, oh, how, how calm you are in these, in these situations. I mean, it's incredible. Do you think sports broadcasting helped like having to call and talk about things that are happening as they're happening or revisiting plays or games or like how much did that prepare you for the, the political realm that right. you talk about a lot now? Well, I never mastered play by play. I never was really great at the names. I got, I was starting to get soccer down pretty well. But I think the one thing you learn in sports is you don't need a script. Mm. I mean, you have your own shorthand. Bottom of the third, RBI single is a dash, Jeter, RBI double, 26th RBI in the year. You know what that looks like? Uh, two <laughs> run, double. So it's a two, uh, two run, two RBIs. So you learn to use a script and not use a script. Yeah. Uh, and that helps in these type formats of uh, Fox and Friends. Because you'll have in your ear, uh, like, for example, I was just on with Larry Kudlow, and they just told him a drone was just shot down off the coast of Yemen. It was a predator drone of ours by the Houthi rebels. Now, think about this backwards-ass tribe shooting down a drone. This just this is literally news. Wow. So you got to be able to ad-lib that. Yeah. you got to know something about a, uh, a predator drone. you got to know the Houthi rebels are totally propped up by Iran. Uh, you have to know what that means and roughly how much is that going to cost? They'll be in your ear. So no script. I think the people who have hard times are more professional, but they, they're used to the old fashioned. Let me toss out to a reporter, read this script. Thanks for joining us. I don't feel I, I excel in that. I feel more, I feel like I do better in the unscripted situation because of sports. Yeah. No, you're so good at it. I mean, there's no teleprompter for you right there. I mean, you're just, we're sitting there on that, on those two chairs talking, cut to commercial, bam, we start talking about whatever else. And then bam, we're right back in. And it's, it's always so impressive. Yeah. Um, oh, thanks. But we're a year out from an election, presidential election. And I've heard you liken uh, presidential elections. It seemed to me like you're likening them to the Super Bowl. You say you like the strategy, the tension, the drama around elections. Um, and, uh, and you, you talk about them almost as if they are the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, outside the pandemic, you pretty much, you can strategize your way to win it. And how are you going to do that? Where are you going to give your speeches? What are they going to say? What's the feedback going to be like? What are the issues that are going to pop up? How are you going to handle it? I'll give you the strategy. For example, in 2008, when John McCain was walking with a suitcase, it looked like after Iowa, his whole campaign fell apart. Well, he got rid of the staff, recalibrated, and did well in New Hampshire. And then the surge, which he fully supported, worked in Iraq. Mm. He and Lindsey Graham and Petraeus and others just said, I think we have one more shot. Blow off the Iraqi study group and give Iraq another shot, using the tribes to fight for their own 
uh, freedom. And obviously, it's one of the most underrated great moments in American military history. Not appreciated because Obama blew it by pulling, pulling everybody out right away. So then all of a sudden, he's the guy. And the strategy is strong with defense, speed, uh, win the Iraq war, and then go, go take on all comers. Well, th- what happens? The economy falls apart. And guess what John McCain's on the record saying? I'm not really great on the economy. Mm. So the Democrats make him eat it. And then Barack Obama, to his great credit, starts calling Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, on his own. And he's like, Hank, I can't make any sense of it. Now, I was talking to people. No one can really, you had to be a real expert to try to figure out this, what was going on. So Obama was smart enough to be a student in the situation, reacted much more calmly, said, this is what I would do. This is what I'm happy the administration's doing. And McCain got angry and shut down his campaign. And, and that's the strategy. He made a mistake. Obama acted better. Obama looked like the guy that would be the perfect guy to turn the page on the Bush years. It worked. The second time to win, he needed a strategy that would have him ignore his record. So you have to go after Romney, and you got to make him unelectable. He's a mean white guy that liked to uh, that liked to buy companies, fire everyone, and ruin families. Mm. Doesn't sound like the Mitt Romney, but the only way to win is to have Harry Reid go out there and say, everybody knows Mitt Romney doesn't pay taxes. That's a strategy, <laughs> right? It's evil. It's an evil strategy. But that, to me, is like sports. Yeah. Well, what do we have coming up? I mean, we have one year, and essentially every single day we're going to be talking about the election up until uh, if, up until November of next year. Um, and a lot of things, obviously, can happen. And we're in some, I mean, people always say unprecedented times, and every time is, is <laughs> different, you know. But uh, when you look at the political landscape out there today, what, uh, what are your first thoughts when you think about this upcoming, uh, this next year? Well, I think that Joe Biden, if if anybody who's doing it, has this job for his years, like, for example, if it was sports, nobody would bring him back another year. Nobody would bring him back another four years. He's done a terrible job, terrible communicator. He, he cracks on Republicans to explain why we're in Ukraine. He never does an interview, acts angry all the time, literally yells out policy that's contradictory as he's walking up stairs to a plane. And every time he has an opportunity, he leaves the job. He does not deserve four more years. But the thing that will sustain him is making the world's worst person, Donald Trump, who looks like, I'm not saying for sure because of the debate tonight, it looks like he's going to be the nominee. So I don't have much to run on. My policies are terrible. My execution's awful. The guy that had it right is coming up, but he is evil and he will ruin the country. I was just on with Martha and Martha rolled a clip of Hillary Clinton. I haven't seen from the view today, at which time she compared Trump to Hitler. Mm. Now we all know that's the most horrific example, totally inaccurate. Um, and the lowest blow you could do, but a lot of people, he, she basically is laying down the gauntlet, get ready. We're going to make you the worst person in the world. We're going to indict you, charge you 91 times, indict you four times. And we're going to let everybody know, you will ruin the country. So that's their strategy. And that's and I think Donald Trump, I don't know if you know, but he's a fighter. So he's going to explode all this. And it's really, uh, sadly, I don't think it's going to help bring the country together. Yeah, I, uh, I, 
I heard you talking to, uh, who are you talking to? Somebody, Will Kane, I think, a while ago, and you said, who would you hire to run your company? Would you hire X person, or would, would I think it was the example was Oprah, would Oprah hire this person that she's endorsing to run any one of her businesses? And, uh, you know, anybody, any businessman can look at any politician out there or anybody in the presidential race and say, who would I hire, who would yeah. I trust to hire my business or one of my businesses? It's, it's an interesting question and a, and a good way to look at, at things, I think. Yeah. Um, but before we get to your book, also, Israel, um, were you surprised? surprised at the reaction here in the United States. I mean, you can always expect college campuses, professors to do some things, um, but you're in New York and we have videos of, I think of an, I think an appointed official maybe tearing down these posters of kidnapped of, Israeli of hostages. kids, hostages, tearing them down, children. Um, and I think she's an elected or appointed official anyway, but it's been happening across the, the country. Were you shocked at the, this, the amount of, of hatred toward, I mean, what are you, how much do you have to hate an Israeli child to pull down their kidnapped poster on a wall? Are we shocked Jack, by there's so many, there's so many different layers of yeah. evil in this. And I'll give you number one is they don't believe it. A lot of them don't believe the attack happened. They feel it was exaggerated. There's no way you saw, um, uh, you see a lot of people. I, I watched the Hamas leaders say it. No civilians were hurt. And sadly it's so horrific not maybe to you, but the average person to see the carnage that took place with 1,400 dead, but brutalized. That Israel says, you know, modern societies don't make this public. We might get to the point where we have to, for them to understand this was a family having breakfast. They never did anything to anyone. 790 of the 1,400 were total innocents, targeted, and they reveled in it, reveled in their blood, insanity and now they're saying i take the palestinian side because i don't think they have a homeland and israel had it coming and by the way i don't think it happened so you think holocaust denial is crazy and unfathomable how about denial of something that happened one month ago and i just think that these parents that see their kids on television rallying for the palestinians have to be so embarrassed and she'll feel like epic failures paying their kids, paying $80,000 of the kids' tuition, and they spend their time on walkouts for Hamas, that's what you're doing for Hamas. Take a book out, read a newspaper, find out really what happened with these peace accords and why how many times from Oslo on down they walked out, including in 1948. Take this side, Palestinians or Arabs. You take this side. Israel says yes. The Arabs say no. Let's start a war. They lose. They take some land for buffer land. They want it back. Can't have it. Attacked again. They lose. Buffer zone. They want it back. Can't have it. Sneak attack in 73. Want it back. Can't have it. So they form terror groups and they try to terrorize since. And now I think Israel says we've had enough. Yeah. And I think uh, Martha McCallum was on last week maybe where they showed a lot of journalists the um or a select group of journalists anyway uh, unedited tapes from uh from october and she was visibly shaken describing it on air um and like you said maybe one day those will have to have to be shown to get some people to believe what happened there but um also it seems that israel is held to a different standard do you see that when you look than the rest of the world oh, yeah. uh and why when you have to when you look at that when you look at that because it's quite obvious um why is that and not just from people in the UN or people who have uh, have part of their charter to uh, push Israel into the sea, but from people in our Congress. What 
what what is that? Why why is it treated differently well, than any other country? I, I don't think you should, and I don't think you are. But Jack, the Republicans get it. The Democrats are the one I'm watching. I'm watching them tear each other's eyes out. You know, the Republicans embarrass themselves, hurt the country with this whole speaker thing. I'll give you that. 22 days, they're done. But this is a fundamental foreign policy of the United States. Of this is the question: Who are your friends? And they're quite. And for 15 members of the House, the answer is not Israel. The answer is my heart goes out to Hamas. Nobody wants a Palestinian kid hurt, but understand whose fault that is. It has nothing to do with Israel. They dropped flyers. They sent text messages. They cleared roads and said leave. I know there's going to be some collateral damage. No, un- unintentional. But the enemy actually, their cl- their collateral damage for our collateral damage is their target. Yeah. And then they just showed it. They're showing video. This is the playground. This is the tunnel. This is the hospital. This is the headquarters. This is the Boy Scout area. This is the armaments. If you want to beat these evil people, you have to go to where they are. And for those people, the Palestinians, they were told, go south. Here's a text message. They're getting now 600 trucks. I know it's a tough life. No doubt about it. 600 trucks of, of aid are coming in a day now. And others are allowed to leave and fly out of Cairo. So Israel didn't want this. They don't want Gaza. They have no choice but to eradicate these people. Speaking of tough lives and history, one of the one of, a benefit of studying history and going putting the phone down and not tweeting and going into the pages of these books, your books in particular right here, gives you an appreciation for what we have in this country, the options and opportunities we have, what was sacrificed from the inception of this country up until today. And uh, yeah. it gives you a way to counter the manipulation that is so prevalent on on social media. Um, so getting into the page of these books right here, uh, beneficial for everyone. Uh, this latest book, Teddy and Booker T right here, it's your eighth book after The President and the Freedom Fighter, which we talked about uh, when that one came out. Um, but take me through, because you have done right here. So we have the George Washington, Secret Six, Thomas Jefferson, and the Tripoli Pirates. Uh, Andrew Jackson, we got Sam Houston, Alamo. And then we move into the one we talked about last time and then your current book. But what was that journey? Because the first one, you started with George Washington. He's on the wall right behind you there. And then you move, you take us through history from there in a very approachable way. And, uh, Thank you. and, and I love all of these, recommend them to everyone. Um, but what was the journey that started with George Washington uh, and then took you to where we are today, to Teddy and Booker well, T? Well, number one, I'm watching, you know, you read Dave McCullough and you receive the job he did with John Adams and Harry Truman. Oh, yeah. And you don't say, wow, I could do that better. It's impossible. <laughs> right. You read John Meacham's book or uh, or you read uh, the Ulysses S. Grant, 1200 pages, right. same author as Hamilton. You go, I, I'm not in that class, but and I don't have 10 years in the staff. But what I what I do is this. I just try to find people, you know, in an area in which you probably didn't realize. And I try to bring it forward in a unique way. And I just try to tell it through these people. And I begin with their quotes and work my way backwards. So with, for example, for 20 years, I looked at George Washington's spy ring. And then when National Treasure popped up on television with Nicolas Cage, everyone loved it. And I go, I got a better story. And it really happened. And I could go to these places. So I, I had like yellow pad longhand. I would talk to the people who would know this story because their families were involved, shake it down, look at all this. I go, this is going to be a great movie. And then they just told me, you know, even if it sells one copy, if you do a book, it's so much easier to sell a movie. So I, all right. 
and it ends up being very successful. And then I got urged to do the war on terror. Who's the first one to take on Islamic extremism? Not many people talked about it. It's in the Jefferson Library. He brought me through and I go, okay, let me try to do this. And I always was fascinated by the War of 1812, underrated how close we came to total annihilation. I love Jackson, the orphan, who ends up coming out of nowhere to be the military hero and the very successful two-term president. That's the American story. And I wanted to ask, when I became, looked at the next thing on the charts, it was Texas. And I go, everybody in Texas knows the history and they know the Alamo. But what about what happened after? That's what brought me to Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. And then President Freedom Fighter through the Civil War. And I go, well, who took us through the most difficult time? And I read up from slavery from Booker T. Washington, which everyone, everybody watching should watch. Once you open it, you'll know what I mean. What if I told you one of the most respected men in America, maybe history, known around the world, was a slave until he was eight remembers being called to the plantation main house and a union soldier announced they're free and read verbatim what he believes was the emancipation proclamation. And this guy who never knew his birthday or his dad with just his brother and his mom's next husband or, or first husband, Washington Ferguson made their way to West Virginia where he worked in a coal mine where all he dreamed was, was an education. What he did to become educated what he did after with that education, and then how he dreamed of having a president speak at the school in which he started, Tuskegee, how he manifested that with William McKinley, and then how his friendship with Vice President Teddy Roosevelt led to this eight-year odyssey when he was in the White House being his main advisor, giving him judges, postmasters, dock workers, every federal appointment in Booker T. Washington, a black man, in Jim Crow South, advising a rich guy who had a terrible upbringing, by the way, very a lot of physical ailments, Teddy Roosevelt, who just saw a great man, not a man of color, at a time in which everybody was seeing way too much color. Yeah. You know, when, when you were born and you remember, Teddy Roosevelt was six years old looking at his grandfather's window, watching the casket of Abraham Lincoln come down. I was going to ask you, you about that. You don't have to explain to him what the Civil War was like. Yeah. That's an amazing visual to picture Teddy Roosevelt watching that moment in history. It, that is, it's fascinating. Um, and by the way, it's on my special on Fox Nation. Yep. If everybody's saying this, uh, you're curious about the book, I've been shooting this for a year with great producers on Fox Nation, and we did it for a year. We went to the sites. I went to the exact you window where site. overhead was Roosevelt's window, and then there was Broadway where Lincoln's casket came down. You'll, you'll see it all. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, just picturing that is incredible. I want to wish veteran Wally King a very happy 100th birthday and want to thank everyone from that greatest generation, the World War II generation who fought and sacrificed so much for the freedoms that we enjoy today. At Navy Federal Credit Union, every day is Veterans Day. That's why they're proud to have served the military community for over 90 years. Their employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are veterans themselves. They serve more than 2 million veterans, so they understand the needs of veterans. They provide resources like Best Careers After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life. They're a top VA home loan lender. They offer award-winning 24-7 stateside member service. Use the hashtag GratitudeMission to thank a veteran and honor their service. Your service inspires ours. Learn more at NavyFederal.com.
org slash veterans insured by NCUA equal housing lender. What's up everyone. This is Jeremy from Ironclad. We are so excited for the new SIG Studios film featuring Kevin Holland, one man, one path, many missions. It's available now exclusively on SIG's YouTube channel, but if you haven't seen it yet, check out this preview here. I had a lot of good memories right here. We really did. They thought it was an army, and it was 60 of us. He goes, you got a huge hole in your back. And I'm like, well, put something in it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I got out because we weren't at war. We're at war, I'm going back. What stands out to me that, uh, you know, I don't, people probably, you know, they remember Booker T. Washington. I remember that high school or I took a class. Who was that again? Uh, because we've gotten so distracted, especially over the last two decades, uh, last decade for sure. Um, but uh, what stands out to me when I went through, went through your, your new book is the way he treated people who were openly racist towards him. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Two, he, he would never give people you never get angry at people. He says, you're giving that person control over your emotions. When you get angry, when you get angry because of the way they act and my words, not his, but his self-esteem was not for sale and he just wouldn't allow it. So if the Johnsons didn't like him, but the Joneses did, he'll work with the Joneses, but he didn't hate the Johnsons. His hope was the Johnsons who grew up with decades of thinking blacks were less than whites would see they weren't by seeing how he worked with his students by seeing how we work with this town, by seeing the people that, that came through Tuskegee, who not only were great academics, all had to learn a trade. And they see these people, he goes, how could you think less? He goes, well, if, if they don't like me now, maybe they'll judge me by what I've done. And he changed generations of perceptions yeah. by not allowing them to touch his self-esteem. So he goes north and he's got to get funding. And some people were closing the doors in his face and other people said, how can I help? You know, the race situation in America is terrible. Here it is, 1890. How do we fix it? And guys like Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Julian Rosenwald, all said, Pierpont, uh, Pierpont uh, also, they all said, how can I help? And they came up with major dollars. And just all he wanted was num not money for him, money for the kids in his school to make it bigger, to graduate more, to make a bigger difference. They loved the country. Yet he was born a slave. Teddy Roosevelt's mom was from the South. Sons fought for the Confederacy. And still, when he saw Booker T. Washington, he saw a partner. And even though Teddy Roosevelt said some things, and you'll Google it, and you'll go, oh, my God, he was a person of his times. He had some blind spots. True. But he also evolved as a person. And when he invited Booker T. Washington for dinner, that was out of friendship. It ended up being controversial that, we, that John McCain referred to in 2008 when Barack Obama won. And you'll see it in the book in the special. Yeah. But this guy just overcame. And I'll give you one story that says it. It'll make you think all day. So he has dinner with uh, with Teddy Roosevelt and his family. And back then, black men did not have dinner at the White House with the white man's family. In the North, in most cases, it wasn't a problem. In certain sections of the South, it was a huge problem. And he worried about the sanctity and future of Tuskegee. He thought they were going to burn the place down. you got to see the headlines. As vicious as you can imagine. So one day he's waiting for a train and a white man walks up to him and says, are you Booker T. Washington? And he said, yeah. 
He goes, you are America's, one of America's greatest men, if not the greatest. And he said, no, no, no I have to tell you, thank you, but greatest man in this country is to President Roosevelt. And he said, I used to think that until he had you over for dinner. Think about that. That's so crazy. That guy did not realize he was insulting Booker T. Washington yeah. by saying what he said. And he said, I really, this is his quote. I realized at that moment, more than ever, I had to let sleeping dogs lie. I can't help that guy. Yeah. I, I can't help him. Generations of people that told him different things about race, yeah. but I can help the next. And he told Tay Roosevelt the story and they both laughed. Jeez. What did you learn uh, in the research for this book about Booker T. Washington that you're going to take forward with you or pass along to your kids? Perseverance, grit, pride, resourcefulness, whatever it takes. I got to get four mile, 400 miles to Hampton. I don't have an Uber app. I have to find a way. <laughs> I'm going to take a, I'm going to get in a wagon. I'm going to convince people to go. I'm going to convince people where they're going to point me in direction where to walk. He got $12 in his pocket and was told, if you get yourself to Hampton College, a historically black college, they'll put you in. He had his so thirsty for education, he just headed that direction. He ran out of money. He didn't eat anything. He woke up one day and heard people uh, unloading a ship. He went up to the uh, ship captain and says, can I please unload this and just, just give me whatever you need or if you gave me breakfast. He was such a great worker. They hired him the next day and the next day got him the next hundred miles, gets to Hampton. He's a mess. They said, we can't, you know, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not getting in here. You're a mess. Comes back the next day and the next day. Finally, they said, you know, what is your background? He tells him, he said, well, why don't you clean that classroom and show me if you'll be useful? Well, he had a white woman that he worked for that taught him how to clean and to be efficient, to carry yourself, proper hygiene, how to stand, how to lose your accent. And he did it. And she goes, who helped you? He said, nobody. He says, I want to see you clean another classroom. She came back and watched it. They cleaned the whole school. They came back and said, you're a janitor during the day. You go to school at night. He ends up being the best student, the best teacher. And when they reach out to General Armstrong, his mentor, a war hero, the white guy, he reaches, goes, I have a 24-year-old that I recommend. They go, no, we want a white guy. He goes, I'm giving you a black guy. And you're never going to regret it. The name was Booker T. Washington. And when he shows up at Tuskegee, there's no school. There's a broken down shack that looks like a shed. It's got no windows and a leaky roof. They have one week to get students and get started or they lose the funding from the state of Alabama. He has to walk around town, convince everyone to come to a school without a curriculum. He gets people mostly older than him to come. Starts with 30 people in 10 days. That grows to be one of the finest institutions in the country where presidents is speaking at the commencement address. And I ask you, I know everyone watching has tough circumstances in their life. I challenge you, were you born a slave? Was it illegal to teach you to read and write? Did you will yourself towards an education, outwork everybody, and then end up sending back for your brothers and your family, and then educating an entire population almost of Alabama? He overcame it, never wanted money, just wanted money for his school. So if your cause is greater than you, that's the greater chance for success. Incredible. And what did you learn about Teddy Roosevelt during this uh, during this research that, uh, that you didn't know before that might have changed a uh, perception that you may have had of him? I know his asthma. People don't really talk about his upbringing as much as what he did later in life. Um, but that asthma had a huge impact on the way he uh, interacted with other people going forward from his from his youth. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really a doctor, but I think he had some intestinal cholera. 
So he could not. He was in, in tremendous abdominal pain. He had bad eyesight. They thought he was going blind. They had no, they didn't realize he just needed glasses, which were, by, by the way, hard to find then. And then he had asthma. They said the family used to just stare and they used to watch him just lose his breath. And they would go for, and they had money and they'd go for every cure they could, but they didn't think he was going to survive. So he couldn't put on weight, couldn't play with, couldn't go to school. First formal school he went to was Harvard. And he weighed about 90 pounds. When he went out, the guy was picked on all the time. So what he did is his dad said to him one, he said he worshiped his dad. And he just said, son, you got a great mind. You got a terrible body. You got to change that. And he became a maniac for health and fitness to the point where his dad went and got him weights. And by the time he went to school, he was on the boxing team. He was doing everything possible. He was leading the hiking club. He became this robust environmentalist living outdoors among what we would call cowboys or ranchers and the Midwest and overcompensate for his weakness as a kid, showing you learn mm-hmm. other things. We don't know. I, I don't even know anybody as smart as him. He could, he had a, he had a, um, he had a, uh, what do they call it? A photographic memory. And he also was the first speed reader. Mm-hmm. So he'd be reading multiple books a day, writing them, uh, writing them at the all virtually at the same time, remembering everything. Yeah. And he just felt like life was in overtime every day, my opinion. Yeah. And then yeah. Uh, when it, talking to his great grandson who became a Teddy historian, he told me that that's it. And maybe he said, you know, in retrospect, it was probably because they thought he was going to die as a kid. And he ended up dying young. Both these guys, 59 and 60 died. Yeah. Both of them, uh, his wife died giving childbirth the same day his mother died in the same house, Teddy Roosevelt. Crazy. Booker T. Washington, two wives died who played a vital role in the school. So with he's a young family, they were both young widowers, had to find a family, make a living, run a school, continue to get financing without a wife. Yeah. So don't tell me their lives were easy. And don't, just because Roosevelt had money, no one was paving his path with gold, and he wouldn't have it anyway. Yeah. He loved self-made men. That's why he read up from slavery like I did. Not that I'm in his class, but like I did the same thing. And I, he said, I got to meet this guy. I felt when I closed the book, I too bad I never met this guy. Yeah. Yeah. And talk to me. You mentioned the 1901 dinner at the White House, which um, it wasn't long after the assassination of uh, President McKinley. Um, and I think one of the first letters that Teddy Roosevelt wrote after becoming president was to Booker T. Washington, if I'm, if You're I'm right. not mistaken. Said, sorry, uh, uh, McKinley, I was supposed to visit Tuskegee, but something came up. I'm now president. McKinley got shot, later died, didn't die right away. And now I'm president. I want you to be one of my advisor. Um, let me know when you come to Washington. And he did. And the Adam Oak for dinner was this big controversy, which I mentioned. So he ends up being advised. He goes, listen, we got to bring our profile of our friendship partnership a little lower. Maybe America's not ready for this. But I also think, Jack, how many kids? People go, what kind of impact you make? I don't know. What kind of impact do you make? When you see a white man, powerful white man, and a powerful black man working together to make America a better place, don't you think kids 8, 9, 10, 16, 17 will maybe go up to their parents and say, I know what you told me about the races. I'm not buying it. How do you explain that? How do you explain that relationship? If Teddy Roosevelt can treat him like an equal. Don't tell me that blacks are less than whites. I just think the the power of an example, you know, we hear it all the time with athletes. So to me, they, they helped the generation um, see less color in, in America. 
And what I wanted to do is the people that took a knee for in a 49er uniform, Colin Kaepernick, or in a red, white, and blue uniform, the women's national soccer team, and thought America wasn't living up to its mandate. Think about what an insult that is to the Frederick Douglass, the Lincolns, the Booker T. Washington, and Teddy Roosevelt, who loved the country and just wanted to make it better. They didn't take a knee. They took action. And they changed uh, generations with a curriculum. Yeah. And they actually built schools and made bricks. They didn't con- they didn't condescend. Uh, they didn't um, they didn't say, well, America's not worthy of its charter. I'm embarrassed. I'm going to sit on the bench. Mm. Really? This guy this guy was in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. He was caught with a white woman. He'd be hanged on the spot if he got too successful. He had risked having his house burned to the ground. The KKK was a real legitimate threat. Sometimes they would shoot you if you showed up to vote. Uh, don't tell me things are bad in America now. This is where we came from, and these are the people that helped us get through it. All right, let's talk about Spartan Forge. You can find them at S-P-A-R-T-A-N-F-O-R-G-E dot A-I. Go check them out. They have an amazing app. Spartan Forge is an all-encompassing hunting and planning application powered by artificial intelligence. Developed by a U.S. Army Warrant Officer conducting intelligence preparation of the battlefield in the special missions arena for our nation's most elite operators. The app offers military-based targeting for hunters. The technology uses artificial intelligence-powered movement prediction. It features movement prediction paired with current and historical wind data, current forecasts, and state data. They partnered with Premier Universities to collect data on deer movement. It is as accurate and testable as scientifically possible. No snake oil, no bullshit. Its UAV map features next-level imagery detail, the highest resolution offered on the market, with up to seven years of historical imagery. Its Blue Force tracker allows users to share pins and location data to a set group of peers in a user-defined area. The LiDAR map lets hunters look through the trees and structures to see topography like never before, giving the user a detailed viewpoint of trails, beds, and more. And the Lambda map is fully customizable, set to parameters selected by the user for fast access. It will also indicate public and private land boundaries. The journal feature lets users keep track of every detail of their hunt, write historical descriptions, and add photos and waypoints, all while pulling historical weather pattern data. And its desktop app features Eastman's Tag Hub. Spartan Forge works hand-in-hand with Eastman's to integrate Tag Hub app into Spartan Forge, providing Western hunting draw odds and stats. Users can search by location, species, season, and trophy potential to best plan their Western hunt. Get 30% off if you sign up with the code DANGERCLOSE at www.spartanforge.ai. That is S-P-A-R-T-A-N-F-O-R-G-E dot A-I. That is the highest discount they have ever offered, and it is perfect to get started on that summer scouting. Check them out, spartanforge.ai. And then it took a few, it took a couple of years, but uh, 1905. Then uh, Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, goes and gives this speech at Tuskegee. Uh, 1905. Um, 
in a, and I love the imagery of a train. I love anything that has to do with trains back in the day when you have to actually put in the time to get somewhere other than jumping on a on a Zoom. Um, but what was that, uh, that 1905? I know we have just a few minutes left here, but that 1905 speech um, that was born essentially out of that letter and then the 1901 dinner at the White House. The, uh, the speech at Tuskegee was written, but the beginning was transcribed because in my view... And Tweed agrees, Tweed Roosevelt. He was overwhelmed. Mm. He said, I expected so much, and it is so much more. When he saw the people, the way they hold themselves, the students, the faculty, the pride, the labs, the agriculture, George Washington Carver, his cutting-edge uh, farming, and uh, when, he, when he saw the seamstress, the women, the teachers, uh, the equal women and men were treated equally. I mean, in 1990, women weren't voting until 1919. And he just saw the production. He saw the kids in school and he saw the other kids building new buildings because the kids would learn trade and they'd apply it to make Tuskegee better. And he just said, man, he got basically, I'm overwhelmed by what I see and how can I help? The speech is there. It's in the book verbatim. And it was so moving. He joined the Tuskegee board. And even after Booker T. Washington died way too young, he served on that board after and spoke at his spoke at his funeral. And if you go to Tuskegee, and I encourage you all to do it, you see his caskets there, the statue and tribute, memories there. You'll see in the special, I spoke to these very impressive professors who have great pride in knowing that, uh, that Booker T. Washington was there and started this whole thing. Now, some people don't like him. Some people think he was too accommodating. Some people think he should have been harder on white people for not treating uh, black people better. But it didn't work to his overall objective. And that is helping as many people as possible while never damaging the reputation or jeopardizing Tuskegee, even if it meant relationships and certain situations. But he also did a lot of financing, provided lawyers for people that were unjustly charged. Uh, I got people out of prison that didn't belong there, but he didn't want to do it high profile. He couldn't afford to be the enemy of segregationist white people in the South. Now, people watching you, Jack, in the South, I am not putting everyone in the same. Not by, and I'm not even judging previous generations. I'm just saying where he was located at that time, Democrats controlled, and they were for, in many cases, uh, separate and not equal. Yeah. And I think I, I read that you learned this while you were researching the book, is that when Teddy Roosevelt died. He was actually planning on running again. So we have Taft and then Woodrow Wilson. And then he was, Teddy was going to give it another, another shot. Is that, uh, where did you find that out? Yeah. Tweed, uh, Tweed told me that yeah. he was made immense with the Republican party. As you know, he left, split it and Woodrow Wilson won. And World War One starts. I think Teddy Roosevelt would have been a much more robust leader. We would have been in a lot quicker, maybe change history. We weren't ready. I think we had 14,000 overall soldiers, no equipment, no guns. But um, but Teddy Roosevelt had got more votes than Taft, the established candidate. But after Woodrow Wilson won, he wanted to he wanted to lead a troop into battle. They told Woodrow was like, absolutely not. We're not going to let you do that. You're too old. So he said, no, he said, OK. So when Wilson's done, Wilson had a stroke, too. He was going to all set the run again. He felt sick, went to bed, had a hunch he wasn't getting up. Again, said something to his wife that basically, you know, I, I just feel terrible and he would never wake up. And that second 
this there would have been the third term because he took over McKinley only six months in, but in the third term of Teddy. Yeah. There's that great quote that says, uh, death had to come for Teddy Roosevelt while he was sleeping because if he'd been awake, there would have been a fight. I love that quote. It's, uh, oh, it's, it's awesome. It's and probably true. It's, it's fantastic. Um, now, you are on book tour like through January. It's in, And they're not just a regular book tour. You're doing like a stage. It, it, it's a different type of book tour. And it's on your website, briankilme.com. People can go there all through the rest of November, December, a few dates in, in January. Um, but what uh, what inspired you to do more of a, a stage show? Uh, in the 80s, wanna, my mom wanna, took me to see Hal Holbrook. And I saw Mark Twain uh, tonight when yeah. I was a kid. And I still remember it to this day. Um, and so when I saw that you were doing that, it kind of reminded me uh, of going to that uh, performance with my mom. So you're doing these book tours and you're signing books and doing all these things. And there's a VIP section yeah, as well. And then yeah, you got exactly. stage some, that are, some that are just signings. Yeah. And there was somewhere I give a speech. And then I just said, what if I made some events where I get a chance? I'm tired of like going to bookstores. I see like a friend of mine online. I got 15 seconds with him. I sign their book. I say hello. I take a picture. Thankfully, people show up. So oftentimes there's a line and I feel bad. So I just said, why don't I create an event where I have an opportunity to talk to people before and after? It's my event. Talk about getting a theater. And I don't act. But I can talk about these books, as you know, that you have lined up. And instead of just being, it's not about me, but it's about the country. And now I think it's winning the war in history. And I talk about what is going on in the beginning. I say, man, I hope you have a passion for history. Now I said, I feel an obligation, a mission to let people know why we are an exceptional nation, to arm you at your next tailgate, your next family get together with individual stories that talk about America's story through those books. Uh, on stage again, like we, we, you and I, we don't need a script and just a PowerPoint to bring some context to what I'm talking about. And we do have a couple of people come on and some, we, we have fun and recreate a few scenes in history, all that. with all in fun, no dramatic acting. And I just give people, I think it's real cool, uh, patriotic, motivational, educational, motivational, inspirational day. Yep. No, I encourage everybody to go to your website, check that out. I'm going to try to, to, to make one if I possibly can. Um, and I want to ask you before we go in the couple minutes we have left, um, first off, everybody needs to go and buy all these books, but don't just get them also gift them, gift them to that, uh, that person in junior high, in high school, in college, buy these books, read them, but also gift them. Um, in the beginning, we talked about you're, you're on all these hours, every single day, you're getting this news all the time. A lot of it, not great. Uh, how do you stay so positive and are you optimistic for the future when you think of the next generation, when you think of your kids and, and grandkids? Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, Jack, we were in civil war. Who would have thought the country was going to survive that? Yeah. And then the, the failure of uh, reconstruction, who thought we were going to solve that? If you and I are growing up in the sixties, and we're rioting one day for uh, racial justice. The next day we're right. We're, we're uh, supporting or we're fighting the Vietnam War. Uh, I think, you know, then we have the draft and people burning their draft cards it was a totally different time. I'm sure the Russians or the Soviets were going excellent. They're falling apart on their own. Yeah. In the 70s, our economy, the double digit uh, interest rates. People couldn't afford a home, couldn't fill up, put gas in our car. OPEC was going to make us pay and bring our country to its knees, the hostages. Go through the time. Then in comes optimism. In comes, okay, we're in a, we're in a uh, cold war. Let's win it, Ronald Reagan. That was much harder than we are now. We got the framework. Got to work on the debt. It's going to need restructuring. Let's do it as a country. Let's realize that our enemies have combined to stop us. We got a much better product. You've got a lot more friends. 
we find a way to unite the country relentlessly with the right leadership. I love where I love our future if we do it right. But understand we're being manipulated from social media on down. The Chinese, Russians, Iranians are all working against us. But you have to first identify the enemy. The next man or woman, Nikki Haley gets it. Ron DeSantis gets it. Donald Trump absolutely gets it. Uh, I don't see anyone in the Biden administration that get it. Uh, if we could get the right person in office, I think that things have gotten, we, we've shown everybody how to do it the wrong way at the border, on trade, on defense, yeah. on how to leave Afghanistan, all this stuff. We all did it wrong. Do the opposite. Yeah. That's why these, these books are so important, having that foundation, that historical foundation yeah. from which to make decisions today that are going to influence our kids and grandkids and future generations. Uh, and just before I let you go, you dedicate this book to your friend Jim Brown. And can you talk to me about the Jim Brown show, your friendship and his influence on you in the last couple minutes we have? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, my dad owned a bar in Manhattan. So my family lived uh, off Clandome Road where Jim Brown was in the second floor of a house with his mom, who was a housekeeper. And I heard all the stories about how he was such a great basketball lacrosse and football player raised by his town, all white coaches in a mostly white rich area. And they didn't tell him, but they sent him to Syracuse and paid the tuition, told him he got a scholarship because he was so convinced he'd earn a full ride. He ended up being a runner up for the Heisman, greatest runner, greatest athlete of the last century. I always followed his career, saw him as an activist, quit at 29, watch him as an actor. I always thought in my head, I got to meet him. I met him in California. They wanted to diversify the station. I said, Jim Brown's over in Hollywood. They contact him. They give someone else the show to host him with. They couldn't believe it. They didn't think I could handle it. I knew that Jim was not going to talk sports on the all-sports station. As soon as he got in there, he talked about the gangs. He talked about the cities. He talked about revitalization. He talked about racial justice in a positive way. I went to Race Relations 101, never judge me, working class white guy with no prejudices, but I don't know the black experience, but I learned so much. We stayed friends for the next 30 years. Every Super Bowl, every major event, every time he had a book out or a movie, he'd come on. And we always would stay in touch and keep in contact. And he would just, I asked him about the Douglas book. Are you okay with me writing a book about, uh, with Douglas and Lincoln? He said, absolutely. He goes, only if I could read it first. And he did. And this one I was working on before he passed away. But he was always such a big supporter, and that gave me the that gave me the sense that Jim Brown's a pretty tough judge. If he thought I didn't get it, didn't understand it, or had any type of um, blind spots, he would have stopped me and educated me. But his his support of me meant so much. When I was making twenty one thousand dollars a year doing all sports radio, and this guy's making millions, known by everybody, lauded by millions, and he spent all his free time getting people out of jail and breaking up gangs. So I just learned so much by watching. I thought it would be a great person to dedicate it to. Amazing. Amazing. And each one of your books has led to another. So obviously, what's next? Has this, did this one spark something uh, that you didn't anticipate writing about? Or I, think gonna, I, think, I think I might go back to educating myself for a while and go easy on the books after this. <laughs> there really is nothing next yet. Really? Okay. All right. Well, uh, uh, if there, I hope there is. I hope you take a breath and explore because these are fantastic. Everybody get them. Check out the Fox Nation show. Also, Brian Kilmeade Radio Show and Fox and & Friends. And I sincerely appreciate you taking the, the time right. with me today. This is a great podcast. Thanks so much for, for caring. Oh, Jack, absolutely. thanks for everything you did for the country. Oh, thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Take care, my friend. I've been a fan of Black Rifle Coffee Company since their inception. I love when veterans leave the military and pursue their passion. In this case, 
coffee. The coffee is fantastic, and as an added benefit, the company is built on quality, patriotism, and giving back to the veteran and first responder communities. I've been a subscriber to the BRCC Coffee Club for years and love it. My favorite is Silencer Smooth. It gets delivered every single month. The Black Rifle Coffee Club. Being part of the club gives you the power to elevate your coffee experience to the next level. The Black Rifle Coffee Club puts you in the driver's seat. You pick the texture and the roast you want, the frequency you want it delivered, and the quantity. You get to completely personalize your club orders, ensuring that your favorite coffee is sent to your door exactly how you want it, when you want it. Right now, Black Rifle Coffee is offering an exclusive opportunity for new coffee club members. Join today and enjoy 30% off your first order when you use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. That's right, 30% off just for being a part of our growing coffee community. Remember to use the discount code DANGERCLOSE at checkout. Welcome to the Gear Highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, from Headstamp Publishing and my friends James Rupley and Ian McCollum, uh, Small Arms of World War II. I love Headstamp Publishing. These books are absolutely incredible. Photography is insane in all of these. James Rupley, of course, takes all the photos for the Vickers Guides and Ian McCollum of Forgotten Weapons. So be sure and follow both of them on the social channels, YouTube channels, and pick up the books and check out Headstamp Publishing as well. A lot of unique Fascinating books over there. And, oh, Christensen Arms. Look at this. All right, this is the Ridgeline. And this one right here is in 300 PRC right there. They were kind enough to put a Vortex optic on there for me. This is the Vortex Razor HD 3 to 15 by 42. And I cannot wait to give this thing a run. Christensen Arms, they're down in Gunnison, Utah, just down the road. So thank you, guys. And this is light. I think this thing is going to be a tack driver. So thank you guys. Really appreciate that. Cannot wait to get this thing out there. And Black Rifle Coffee fueling up yet another book as I finish up book number seven. So thank you guys very much at Black Rifle Coffee. Love these right here. And Eagles and Angels. If you haven't checked out Eagles and Angels, check them out. They do some amazing work and give proceeds to different veteran-focused organizations. So uh, check out eaglesandangels.com. Right here, P365 from SIG. Hard to beat. If you don't have one, definitely give one a run, and uh, you'll probably be carrying one from that day forward. So this one right here was set up by True Precision. They do some amazing work as well. So check it out, SIG P365. And speaking of carrying right here, so David Acosta Jr., if you're not following him on Instagram, highly recommend it. Really cool guy. And so this is a, a, some new gear that he has out from highspeedgear.com. So uh, some low-vis mag pouches right there. See that? Very lightweight here. There's one for the AR. So check those out. Uh, once again, David Acosta Jr. And uh, right here on this, it talks about all the people that he worked with in developing these. And highspeedgear. Com. I'm looking forward to giving these a run. I can already tell that these things are exceptionally made, and I think they're pretty new. So go and check them out for sure. And David Acosta Jr. on Instagram. And at a book signing recently, I was down in Poison Pen signing some books with my friend Jim Shockey. And uh, a lot of times people will come through, and uh, military, police, uh, firefighters will 
give me a coin and uh, I try to bring a lot of coins with me so I can give them one right back. Uh, but I had not gotten one from a judge before. And this thing has some serious weight to it, so it will double as a weapon. So uh, Judge Miles Keegan. And look at that. So that's Arizona on one side, 82nd Airborne on the other. So very cool. This thing is solid. So uh, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. And a book. All right. Uh, Jenny Urich, and she has uh, an organization. Uh, a podcast is the Thousand Hours Outside podcast, but uh, there's a website, thousandhoursoutside.com, all the social channels. This is her book right here, Until the Streetlights Come On. And uh, I was on her podcast. We had a great conversation. Please go and check her out for sure. Until the Streetlights Come On, and that's a thousand hours outside. And uh, 1,000, that's the number, one zero 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 hours outside.com. There it is. And while you're outside, might as well smoke a great cigar. This one right here, uh, Kyle here at undaunted.life.com. And for the cigars, undaunted.life slash cigars. So uh, thank you so much for sending these along here. And I might smoke one of these in about 15 minutes. So thank you so much. And Watches, DC vintage watches, Nick over there. He tracked down a hard to find Vietnam era Seiko for me. And this is nice. Look at that right there. This is a recently discovered Seiko that was uh, worn in Vietnam. But uh, to find out more about the different watches used in Vietnam, uh, check out Watches of Espionage to follow him on Instagram and sign up for the newsletter as well. So much great information out there on watches in general, but then watches in the world of intelligence and military circles as well. So watches of espionage. And thank you for the coin because I can open my sodas with it. And what else here? Also, yep, uh, Cincinnati police right here, mounted unit right here. Uh, really appreciate you guys uh, and everything that you do out there holding the line each and every day. So thank you. And I think that is it. Oh, we did one watch here. We talked watches espionage, Forster Watch Company. That's what I'm wearing today right here. Those guys are fantastic. And I think that's everything. Take care out there. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Brian Kilmeade and his book tour locations and dates, go to briankilmeade.com. You can link to the socials from there. And also be sure and check out his Fox Nation special on Teddy and Booker T. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you got something out of this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.